That, so that's one of the advantages yeah. not being married to the outcome. Yeah. It's because when I'm done, I can say, that's what I wanted. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. You're right. <laughs>
They're gonna have to stop me if I ever say we because I, I, I sometimes I'm like we we like to start things off this way and then I'm like no it's just me and <laughs> 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 make yourself seem bigger than you are it's just one person. Um, but I like to start this off by talking about the personal projects that people are working on because I think what's interesting to me is not just the the big you know cool stuff that's happening but what you do in your spare time that's not for anybody else and it's just for you, but that has to do with tinkering or making. And it doesn't have to be, you know, it could be anything. Wow, it's been a while since I've done something just for me. <laughs> um, that's the trouble, isn't it? That's yeah. the trap. So my making actually started out of necessity. Mm-hmm. So I made things because I needed them and I couldn't get them any other way. Yeah. So I suppose my earlier projects were probably things... Um, even those were in support of somebody else, though. Yeah. So the maker space, for example, <laughs> was created because I needed a space. Yeah. <laughs> the um, the programs I created because I needed programming. Yeah. I, see, what's the last I made just for me? That's tough, isn't it? We, it is tough. I, I, I have yeah. to go back to childhood. Not <laughs> no, I'm serious. Yeah. I have yeah. to go back to childhood, and that would be making a working model of a heart. Working model of a heart. Yes, out of wood. Out of wood. Okay. And marbles, wood and marbles. Yes. How big was this thing? Uh, about twelve inches square. Okay. You know, it was just. It wasn't very big. Okay. It was, um, and I shouldn't call it a. It wasn't three dimensional. It was actually. Um, well, right. Two, two dimensional. Yeah. Right. 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 Okay. But it was. Uh, as how large how the heart works. Okay. How old, it, how old? You're... Maybe nine or ten. Nine or ten. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so we're we're reaching. That's the last time you've made something for yourself. For myself, yes. Well, I shouldn't say <laughs> that. I've I've sewn things since then, but okay. Tell me about what, tell okay. me about that. Let's see. I've always been. I used to be super thin. Okay. So I could never find clothes that fit me properly. So I would make things just to wear. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed making costumes. Oh, Not yeah. quite to the level of cosplay yet. Yeah, I'd love to get. In, I would love to do that. Um, beyond that, they were just practical yeah. things. That's when I was a kid. We didn't. I mean, I. I don't know how to put. Every Halloween, we'd have handmade costumes mm-hmm. because costumes cost money, and my, you know, and they were more the, fun right. that way. And they're more fun too. You know, you'd go to the school, and uh, everybody would have the uh, out of the box Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle thing. With like the floppy shell, and my parents like got coat wire coat hangers to make the shell like nice and yeah. rigid, and as you know, so that's that's fun. I was also what's interesting is um, you know I was just talking uh, again because I actually I talked to Sarah for this uh, my wife because mm-hmm. of her work in maker centered things and learning outcomes. Um, so I interviewed her recently for this, which was kind of funny because she's my wife also, um, but she has just interesting stuff. And she talked about her how she does a lot of sewing, and that's what her her background is in. Mm-hmm. And number one, she said it's because she's cheap. And number two, <laughs> um, number two is because she sees possibilities in things. Do you do you do that too? Like she she'll she'll go to a Goodwill, and she'll see a wool shirt, and she'll see that that it just says wool that can turn into, you know, some other thing. Is that do you see like the potential in in materials? Um. I could say yes and, and sound really um, awesome, but sure. no. No, yeah. <laughs> I have a very practical eye towards mm. things. Yeah. So I can, so repurposing things, yes. Yeah. I do that. But it's not because of, I'm driven by some artistic um, inspiration. It's sure. generally speaking that I'm trying to accomplish something. Okay. And then I can see a way to do it some other way. Okay. So, um, I have no difficulty in seeing um, a three-dimensional object out of something that's flat if I need that three-dimensional object. Ah, so do you think, okay, you, you pick the thing that you're gonna use to make whatever it is, and you have this idea of what you wanna make, right? Usually. Does that, how do, does that evolve as you're working on the thing, do you think? like It does evolve, yeah. it does evolve, because I don't really uh, start out with a design in mind. I have a general outcome I'm looking for. Yeah. So, um, oh, that's interesting. So you, you're, you're not you, you're not married to some like ideal of what no, the thing should I'm be. No, I'm generally married to some function because okay. I'm, I'm very practical ah, driven. Yeah. So if I need if I need um, so Halloween costume is a great idea. Great example. Yeah. If I need a costume for my daughter, 
Yeah. Uh, when she was younger. And I, I'm aware of her body size and, and the fact that she used to be very clumsy and she uh, wants to look a certain way. Yeah. So then I would, I would focus on, well, what, what costumes, what material, rather, can we use that allows her to achieve this fairy princess uh, look oh. without tripping over the ends of it right. and that I could make sort of fit over her coat. I'm really driven by, by a lot of very practical right. things. And that makes her feel a certain way, too, because you mentioned the that way. she yes. wanted to be the It's important right. that, she, that she felt like a princess. Right, yeah. So a princess needed something that was light and airy. Yeah. But the mom in me needed her to be warm. Yeah. <laughs> so right. then, I would, then I would look for things that are warm and overlay it with something that was... That was um, right. But I, didn't, I don't walk into the store thinking, where is something airy? I just kind of look yeah. and see what's there, and they... That will fit my need. So the uh, the aesthetics don't necessarily drive it. They're a, an additional consideration along an additional with, consideration. with functionality and, and whatever other constraints yeah, Functionality you first and then given this, this function, how can I make it look better? It's funny. I was thinking about this because uh, I was thinking about how we we're going to talk today. Mm -hmm. And the podcast name is This Should Work because I really, <laughs> I very much think that that's my mantra. My mantra yeah. is like... <laughs> It's a, it's a general shrug in the direction of the world, like, yeah. I don't know. And I've always thought, I was thinking, yours is very similar, but it's like, we're going to make this work. And it's because every time I see you working with something, you, you might have like we an, like an obstacle thrown your way and you go, I'll figure it. We'll just, you know, you're going to figure a workaround or a work through or, or something like that. So that's one of the advantages yeah. not being married to the outcome. Yeah. It's because when I'm done, I can say, that's what I wanted. Yeah. <laughs> Right, right, yeah, <laughs> right. Because you, it doesn't, you didn't, you, you, right. It's the, the, the intent isn't, isn't, um, you know, some final outcome of what it, it specifically looks like. It's a, it's a final. I don't want to say feeling, but it, it is kind of like a final, uh, you know. It's a um, concept. Yeah. I'm yeah. aiming for a concept. Yeah. Even if I'm recreating something. So, for instance, we built seven foot tall Pac-Man. Sure. Pac-Man. So a Pac-Man is predefined, but we want something a little bit different. So the concept we went with was uh, something inviting but familiar. Okay. Inviting, familiar, but different. So immediately mm. the color changed. Okay. Uh, familiar, the like Pac-Man was familiar to those in my age group. Emojis okay. is what was familiar to the young ah, folks. Okay. So our Pac-Man had emojis for a face. Interesting. We. Um we call those design pillars when I'm teaching game design. Okay. It's the th the pillars that like if you take them out, mm -hmm. everything falls apart, and so you have to stay true to those those things. It's just interesting to see these patterns pop up like oh, that 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 we have that I can I, I have a name for it that I teach in a class doesn't mean it's like an original thing. It's what everybody does. It's just you give it a name. You just give it a name because instead. words matter. Because words matter, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, Shakespeare has something to say about that too, but that's a um, anyway. So <laughs> the that which arose um, piece. Anyways, um, cool. So so you know a history with craft and, and, and sewing, and you've got your heart, the heart, and you know ten years old. But you do a lot of things. You, you when you make things, it's for people. And what's interesting to me about that is um, so like with you know, constructionism. Papert talks about how it's not enough to m just make something. It's about making things um, for other and with other people. Like the difference between, and I've probably said this on the podcast before, playing guitar in your bedroom and playing guitar in a band live on stage, right? Like mm -hmm. there's, there's just a lot more you learn with that feedback loop. So it's interesting that you're, you gravitate towards that. And I wonder why... What, why that is? Why, why do you gravitate towards making things not just for yourself, but for others? I'm really a very social person. Okay. Uh, there's something about uh, seeing something come together that, um, that a group works on. Hmm. It seems more magical than doing it alone. And I can do things on my own, and I have, but a yeah. um, great example. I used to make, because I did make stuff, yeah, yeah. I used to <laughs> make balloon sculptures. Not oh. twisted animals, but you know, like exploding walls and yeah. uh, uh, sculptures, if you will. Yeah, a friend of mine does that for um, like some local, uh, or he used to do that for local exhibitions. But that was fun. And I could yeah. do that alone, and that was therapeutic, but it yeah. became like work. But when I did it with the crew of folks, yeah. even, if, even the, with the crew, it means it could evolve less. Mm -hmm. 
because you have to actually have some common goal. Okay. But it was a lot more fun watching it come together because it wasn't just me looking at my work. It mm. was watching how the other pieces came together and brought it to life. Okay. Um, it just seems to feed some social need I have, I think. So what's the... So, so if you're making something by yourself, you have more agency over its yes. outcome. Mm -hmm. um, and if... if but and, and there's a challenge that has its own unique challenge. And when you're making things with other people, um, having that agent, you have a little bit less agency. Is that what kind of what you're saying? Like a you little have a less? little bit less agency because you have to agree yeah. on some things in advance. Okay. Um, but then there's a new. Is there a different challenge? And what is? Could you talk about what that? What is that challenge then? Um, you have to connect. So if you're going to be creative about it and you don't mm. want to have the outcome uh, prescriptive, then mm -hmm. you have to connect on some level. So as you're evolving the project, yeah. evolving it, it at least in concert with each other. Um, mm. I find that kind of uh, interesting and fascinating because I learn about myself. I learn about others in doing that. Yeah. And usually the outcome is much better than I could have done on my own. So what is it... Um What's different about that and, let's say, just sitting in a room with people and talking with them? And, it's and, not tangible. Yeah. I'm, I'm a doer. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I want to do, I want to see, I want to touch it. Okay. okay. So, so my background is software. Okay. So I've created with software and I understand these, um, so I created software robots long before I understood mechanical robots because it's really just scripts. Okay. What were you using? Um, I was a Unix programmer, so I was actually oh. doing true scripting at the, oh, okay. at the operating system level. Okay, interesting. Um, I was I was curious because there's the whole Mindstorms thing that started in like the 80s or. We've used Mindstorms too. I've been yeah. in my profession. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. When okay, I'm sorry because I see you because you're I see you in education. <laughs> well, I got paid. Yeah. I used to actually be in. The, I came from industry. Yeah. I used okay. to work for a living and get paid. I, 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 I can't believe I didn't know that. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I had 25 years in the systems um, before Jeez. I started doing anything. Okay. But that was so intangible. Yeah. You know, it was it was reports and it was. Um, Ex you know, reports and graphs and such. Okay. So it was important. That's when I started doing balloons. I needed something I can touch. Okay. So sitting around and talking with folks and theorizing, it's nice, but let me see it. Huh. So if I'm, if I'm going to discuss an idea, yeah. a concept with you, I would much rather get out some craft supplies. Yeah. And then, uh, you heard the term metaforming? No. Where you take a metaphor and you yeah. bring it to life? So oh, you, okay. you take just whatever you have at hand yeah and you try to vi try to make that thing real okay and then what you do is because it's because it's visible yeah and you both talk about the same metaphor or the same mm. concept you suddenly realize that <laughs> words matter yeah. and that what we internalize when we say words or hear yeah. them is different yeah. and you can tell it when you visually create it so, so making things with people helps you learn about them and myself and yourself, and I'm, tr I'm hesitating from saying better than, but differently than if you were to have a conversation Absolutely, different, differently than. As a matter of fact, in some ways, deeper than. Yeah. Because Why? Because you get caught up in the words. Ah. You get tripped up in the words. Yeah. I cannot tell you the number of conversations where I've had when at the end I'm thinking, are we in the same conversation? Yeah. Just because, sure. because our, our experiences are different. Yeah. And the English language is so vast yeah that, you have um, preconceptions have, in yes. your mind the connotations mm. are so very different depending yeah. on where you even regionally where you came from yeah that's interesting there's a there's a, a new-ish philosophy that i kind of align a lot of my work with mm -hmm. called speculative realism bear with me for a second because okay. this actually relates and there's a, a form a, a subset of it called object-oriented ontology okay. which is in opposition in many ways, to Kant's view of how the world worked, okay. and Kant is Kant is the it would it, it is cognition, and what you think is how and, and your perception defines the world around you. Okay. And object-oriented ontology says that it's not perception; it's it's that um, uh, Graham Graham Harmon, one of the people who writes about it, has a book called Tool Being. And it's, it's about how the tool influences 
the reality and how the material influences reality and and yeah your ideas in some ways do but these are all married together and that's what the real is well i do believe that the tools influence yeah. reality because uh, your reality is reflecting your experience yeah and the tools and materials you use shape your experience right so uh, back to the whole software versus yeah. making things because my experience was almost totally was non-tangible things. Yeah. When I first started having, so going back, I'm, I've got a few years on you. Mm-hmm. So when I first, <laughs> well, you <laughs> don't know that. I could be, I could be very old. You could be. <laughs> no, I could uh, be. I could be a hundred. You and could then... be. <laughs> when computers, um, when computers first became very um, used a lot in business, the big thing behind software is to be hardware independent. Mm. It started off very hardware independent so that, and that was the whole job of the systems engineers mm. to put this layer between the end user and the hardware so they don't have to know, they don't know what's attached to it. Right. And that was, that's the, that's the area where I was trained in and educated. And then the mainframe, because I was a mainframe program originally, a mainframe systems programmer. Yeah. And then uh, the mid-range computers came up, the Unix machines. Yeah. Um, and some distributed processing machines. And then the hardware mattered more. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, for the first time, I struggled because up until then, I had never had to care about what type of hardware was attached. Yeah. Um, I still remember the first time I did a software install on a Unix machine. After I had been doing this on mainframes for a while, I could not figure out how to get started because I had no idea what a CD was or where to put it. Ah. So I still like, what do I do with this thing? Yeah. Because I never had to worry about those the things. The tool, right. The tool, right. So the, it wasn't, when I started working with those machines where I had to actually touch the machine, because before I never touched them, I interacted right. with the monitor. When I started touching with the machine, I developed a different appreciation for the operating system. Okay. And I suddenly appreciated all that went into it and why the assembly language was so difficult and so complex and why reading dumps were important. Interesting. So I want to jump to, so, so then, you know, you, you mentioned um, Level Up and uh, you, we were talking before uh, you guys started in 2011. And it, in many ways, I'm, I'm guessing, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that that space embodied, embodies, embodies that kind of learning. Oh, absolutely. The same, because you value it and you want other people to. Um, so. Level Up came about because we yeah. were uh, from the robotics team, actually. It's originally mm. with the robotics team. Okay. We have always taken the approach that uh, learning as community, learning within community is what is that learning really matters. Okay. Um, because we didn't have much, and because okay. I have a southern upbringing, if I have, okay. a, if I have a pot of beans, you have, you have, I add water and you eat too. Okay. So whenever we receive something, make it work. <laughs> you make it work. Absolutely. <laughs> we make it work. Yeah. So when we were given the opportunity to have a space that we could work in, we knew other teams needed space. So we invited them there. So we worked together quite a bit. We put together yeah. activities. We created opportunities for people to come in and learn. So we can learn together. Yeah. I could find some. If I could find a resource to come and teach something, I could. It was easier, or just as easy hmm. to teach my team as to teach my team and two other teams. Right. So we we kept doing this. Uh, informal anyway. When the opportunity came to get the space at the Ford City Mall, um, I needed to start trying to find funding for it. I needed a name. Yeah. So we decided, at first we were referring to it as our robotics workshop, but that didn't seem quite, it wasn't inclusive enough because we did more than just teach robotics related things. We were also um, mm. starting to do more constructivism, just creating, building things just to learn how they work. Uh. And I, so we would, we would um, so I came yeah. up with a bunch of activities I call now activities. Okay. So I, wanted, I wanted the young people to be able to try something out without having any prior knowledge. Yeah. And so we went and found, we found most of them, created some. But it was simple things like um, making a flashlight okay. with a um, coin cell battery, LED. Oh, sure. And okay. a um, yeah. um, test tube. Oh yeah, because then it, yeah, it diffuses, it diffuses the, the light. Yeah, right. And I just and those kinds of things, I really just kind of went walking around places, you know, circle stores, and right. <laughs> trying stuff out. But that wasn't exactly robotics, but it was one of the concepts they need to understand how a circuit's complete in order to appreciate mm-hmm. 
why why do we why even robot was important? I really like that. that like, let me tell. I had a I gave a talk at um, a local library recently, mm-hmm. and we were talking about what projects they should incorporate. And I I said, well, you the way I think of it is you can look at the the projects in terms of scale. And you can, I think good beginner projects are either at extreme, like big, big scale, Mm -hmm. and you're working with multiple systems that work with each other, but you don't have to understand how all those systems work, just how they link together, or at a very, very small scale where you're understanding the underlying fundamentals of one particular system. And so what is it about that I have, you know, I haven't thought about it much since I, I, I talked about it. Um, and I've got my own thoughts, but I don't care about those for this for this podcast. <laughs> okay. What are, what is it about that that you think? What is it about knowing that fundamental thing that's important? Actually, it's not important. Oh, okay. What's important is that someone uses a skill or a concept they didn't know about before, and they're immediately successful. Oh, because the minute, sure. So that's why the small one. So you. They build mm. a flashlight, and what happens is that I don't care the age of the person. Yeah, the face immediately lights up. They go, "Wow!" Okay. Yeah. So now, when you got the wow, yeah, they're listening, and now you can explain why it works. Got small wins. Yeah. Small wins because okay. success breeds more success. So if you like with the with the flashlight, mm-hmm. some people focus on. By the way, we also use duct tape. Okay. So to to focus the light. Okay. So now some focus on making it look a certain way. Yeah. Some focus on trying to get the light brighter. But as they're trying different things, yeah. you have their undivided attention. Their brain is ready to learn. And now you can talk about mm. uh, completing circuits. You can talk about uh, mm. diff- diffusing the light or focusing the light. Yeah. Now, because they're ready to hear. So let me ask you this. You, um, I've got a rapt audience. I've, I've given them a small win. Okay. Um, and then you, at some point, you're going to move on to, you're going to scaffold on top of that, right? Yes. Things are going to start getting a little bit more complex. And, uh, you know, you and I have probably both seen this, but you see th- at that point, when you start moving in that direction, there's a couple people and then it grows, mm-hmm. the more complex it gets, who um, for one reason or the other get, get frustrated, right? And they might walk away from the project. So how do you overcome? So at, at that point... I'm not sure, is it possible, can you give them another small win? Or do you, at some point, teach them, how do you teach somebody to persevere? So, so I don't do scaffolding in the traditional academic sure. sense. Yeah. So we have a variety of small wins that are seemingly unrelated. Okay. Um, so maybe you've made the flashlight and you barely got it to work, you okay. could care less, but you had great fun with the duct tape yes. and making it look good. Okay. So. I will oh. scaffold on top of the artistic part mm. that you were actually interested in. Okay. And then give you an activity. Uh, maybe maybe you're going to make a duct tape wallet. Okay. And then say, wouldn't you really like to kind of see what would happen if you opened the wallet and the light came on? Ah, okay. So you're pi- you're, you're kind of pivoting we to pivot. some, something based on the interest. We pivot right. based on the interest. That's, oh man, I wish I could have Sarah here. So, because she, she would say something very similar, which is, um, schools are very focused on outcomes, and outcomes are very product-driven yeah. linearly. Yes. And what you're talking about is enthusiasm and capturing that energy and directing it, and eventually you'll get somewhere, but everybody might not end up in this exact same place, but they'll, they'll end up with a, a general curiosity. Absolutely. And, oh, But okay. you know, think about it, because you got small children. Yeah. They all, all healthy children, who are physically capable learn to walk. Yeah. But they don't all do it the same way. Yeah, okay. And we don't try to force them to either. Yeah. So somehow as, as adults guiding younger folks, or guiding learners, we decide that we know best. Yeah. And we try to force them down a certain path. Mm. But when you allow them to develop their own path, um, like the infant who crawls, you know, the toddler who's crawling on their hands and toes. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen that or not, the walking on the hands and toes before they stand up. Some will do that for a long time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah bear walk. Bear walk. I the bear walk, yeah. Yes. They will bear walk, and if you leave them alone one day without any, without any prompting, they stand up. Yeah. Because they're ready. Right. But with 
when we're trying to guide learners, we decide that no, because the research says if you're on your knees, you'll get this you'll go this fast. Sure. Well, research is about a subset of people in right. a certain set of circumstances. Right. We can learn from it, but it shouldn't dictate how we right. offer learning opportunities. Yeah, it's not linear. Oh, that's interesting. So there's um, um there's a uh, another philosophy called the zone of proximal development. And it's uh, Vygotsky, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, wrote about it. And the way that it's pictured is um, like a, a circle and then another circle around that circle on the outside and then another one around that one. And I'm visualizing now as you're talking about this that, you know, like let's say I wanted to go from my inner circle, which is the things I know and I'm very comfortable with, to the one right on the outside. If you think about it as a circle, there's like a million different directions you can That's get true. to that next that next part of comfortability um, and, and any, any direction I go in, I'm going to get there. It's just that I can, I can move outwards, you know, multidimensionally rather than linearly. And back to the question of how yeah. you encourage someone who's frustrated. Yeah. By the time you take that first branch and you're uh, redirecting them to something a little bit more involved, but based on their interests, at that point you start preparing them for the inevitability of not succeeding the first time. Yeah, okay. Um, so, the talk uh, about failure is kind of a wholly another subject, but yeah. if, you, if, if you frame it as, now we're going to do this thing, it may not work the first time, but it will work. Yeah. And then give them some space to work on it, give them some room to struggle a little bit, but jump in before they actually are totally fail. Yeah. Just redirect, ask them leading questions. Yeah. Because allow them to find their own success. Yeah. But let them find, find their success after a few um, missteps, if you will. Yeah. You, you're going really quick over this part, though, that I think is really hard to do and that you're good at, but that most people aren't and we don't talk about a lot, okay. which is this. You, you mentioned that you give them room and then you jump in when you notice that they're having a problem. And I think a lot of educators in particular might have an idea about where they want the person to end up at and then they, they try to guide them towards that idea rather than giving, so it's tricky I would think to both occupy a space where you're giving somebody room and also occupy a space where you come in to in some way give them direction but not direction that heads them towards your idea but towards theirs. How do you how do you, I think that's a trick, that's tricky. I have, I have two secret weapons. Yeah. First of all, um, without being political, let's just yeah. simply say that my life circumstances put me in situations where I couldn't get help. Okay. I need to learn things and figure them out. Okay. So I had a chance to understand what it feels like to flail around and okay. feel helpless and okay. not, but not, uh, but be determined not to give up. Yeah. Um, so I had a little experience with that feeling, so I can recognize it in others. Okay. The other is that I'm not a formal educator, so I don't have anything, I don't have any of the ah. external requirements of ah, them to yeah. accomplish what I want to accomplish. Right. So if in the robotics team, for instance, if I want someone to understand how pneumatics works, then it's not because I have a standard to meet. Yeah. It's because they want to use pneumatics to accomplish something. Yeah. They have their own internal motivation right and as long as I've can long as also I work with uh, my learners to develop a sense of trust right so they trust when I me mean, when I say that we will get this done it will work it will right. happen then they will stick with it because okay she said it's gonna work so I'll try a little bit harder okay I'll try a little bit longer so mm. that combination helps a lot I can um, I can almost read when someone is to the point that they want to give up okay um, but that comes from spending time with them. You know, I, I'm truly a hands-on mentor. Yeah. So. Um, you you also must. I, I, I'd imagine you need to have a deep knowledge in the in the task at hand, right? To um, to work with, let's say, 20 people, and be able to recognize where they are in that task. No. No. So you no. don't know. So you're, so you're, you're good at the people, but you don't necessarily need to know, um, let's say we're building a robot or something like that. You don't need to know everything about no. the I, robot. You just need to know about the person and then trust that they'll figure out the part of the process. That they're, absolutely. They're For me, in. making ah. is about 
learning. Yeah. So yeah. I make, I often make things I have no idea how they're going to work. Yeah. So that I can learn how they actually do work. And by the time I'm done, it's like, oh, that's how that works. That's how they came yeah. together. Yeah. And so I stay in a perpetual state of, I wonder how to do that. So that yeah. I can help the learner embrace that sense. I'm, I'm, I try not to be the expert in the room. Interesting. My husband has a famous saying there, if you're the smartest one in the room, time to leave the room. Yeah. You the room. Yeah. So when I'm working with my learners, with the robotics team, for instance, there's some things I've learned over the years. Huh. But the very first year, I had no idea, and this is not an exaggeration, yeah. the difference between a wrench and pliers. Okay. And even now, I have trouble remembering the name of which because it's not important to me. So, so I wonder, is because what I see a lot of people that I've already talked to for this thing, and just a lot of people being around makerspaces, one of the things that drives a lot of them is understanding how a thing works. Yeah. And I wonder, is it possible that maybe in addition to, or instead of, or beyond that, is your interest in also how people, is it how people work? And you, you use making as a vessel to figure out how, how people work? I think that's part of it. I hadn't thought about it that way, but, but yes, I get a chance to observe the, the way they approach problems, the way they handle adversity. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's a bonus. That's definitely a bonus. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So you've got, okay. So you've got so, this, you've got this space and um, you've got, it starts out with some robotics, but also many other things, right? And people are, are you're learning things about people and um, they're learning things about themselves and, and about the, the systems that they're working with and, and, and so on. Um, what is, how do you, how do you find people for that community? How do you bring people in and how do you <laughs> trickier than that is how do you get them to come back right yeah okay so um i don't yeah the, uh, word of mouth kids find okay. each other okay yeah um the way that i get them coming back is that i give them big wins we have big goals ah, so we okay. um so back in the in the early years um i, did, I made a decision the very first year we were competing we're going to do two events no matter what Okay. Because yeah. just once, one and out wasn't enough. One and done, and it was not very satisfying. Right. So they knew that they could, they stuck with it. They get to travel at least once. What? Why wasn't one? Why was one thing not satisfying, and two? Oh, because it's such a big effort. You work yeah. really hard, and you compete this one day, and it's over with. Unless, of course, you are competing at such a high level that you advance to the I world see. championship. So you need a heightened we level need, of. Yes, you need you need, some, you need something else to look forward to. Got it. We also, um, so teenagers are at an interesting point in their lives. They want to feel good about themselves. Mm -hmm. They often don't, but their ego still has some needs to be met. Sure. So I met the ego needs by making certain that I put them in front of other young people okay. so they can show up with their learn. Um, okay. Quick little side story. Yeah. I remember the, f the first year that we had a team, there were twin boys on our team. Okay. Who were the typical, you know, they were the hard guys, they were the hard urban guys, they weren't interested in all this stuff. Okay. And the first time they came to me, yeah, sure, fine. And then about a, I don't know, a week or two later, I overheard them talking, and they were talking about, man, and you know, so-and-so, uh, she was like, uh, you build robots? I didn't know that. That girl was all over me then. I'm like, hmm. <laughs> so I learned yeah. then that um, those skills were skills that were unusual enough in their communities yeah. that the teens became sort of a celebrity if they could do it. Oh. And so I started finding ways to, to help them feel good about what they were doing. So when it was hard, they mm. didn't give up because they do that. First of all, if I don't give up, uh, she promised me we're going to be successful. Right. We're going to finish this thing. Right. And they trusted you. They trusted yeah. me. And then they had stories they can tell folks. They can say, look at this thing that I've done that nobody else is doing that I know of. It's interesting because it's almost flipping the social pressure component on its on its head, right? And, you know, I, I hate to go back to that library thing that I, I did, but we had that same conversation where they were talking about how they'd bring teens into the library and if they didn't know how to do something, they were afraid, they'd, they'd walk away and get frustrated because they didn't want to appear stupid in front of their, right. like they didn't know what they were doing in front of their friends. But that what you're doing here is you're, you're kind of um, using that same 
um, desire to, to, to feel like you're a part of, you know, whatever, but in a, in a, in a positive way. How do, uh, that's an interesting line to... The, and the other thing, yeah. too, about the, uh, the way we avoided that sense of, uh, I don't want to be embarrassed because I don't know, right. is that um, initially, I make it very clear that no one knows. Yeah. There's always someone who knows more than others. Yeah. Um, but I usually find a way to bring in a very non-threatening way to emphasize something that everybody doesn't know. Yeah. I'm sorry, to find something that there's something, there's always something that everybody doesn't know. Right. And then also that there's something that you know that someone else does not know. Okay. So we kind of love huh. the playing field with that. That's, a, that's an interesting exercise in information theory. That, that's, we do hidden information and known information in game design too. That's, that's fascinating. It's, it's fascinating to see overlaps between games and, and making because I, I, I actually do have this, this working theory that tinkering is just another form of play. And actually I saw in your, when we were talking about things that you wanted to talk about, you mentioned whimsy and play as well. And so it's fun to see these overlap. That's why I'm here at, at, at DePaul is to teach games but I, I also teach tinkering, and those right, things are Here's an interesting thing. Yeah. I was not a gamer when I came to this. Yeah. But I learned a lot about game theory from my teens because a lot of those were. I, yeah. I discovered that the, the, the learners who were attracted to, to robotics tend to be gamers, yeah. artists, yeah. and musicians. Interesting. And it was interesting trying to figure out the, the combination. It occurred to me what it really is that they all enjoy a challenge, they all enjoy creating something, and yeah. they all expect a certain amount of structure. Yeah. There's a, there's a certain logic, there's certain patterns they're looking for. Sure. Um, and so I try to use that within um, the way I present things. Yeah. So I don't exactly gamify things exactly. No, gamifying is a bad idea. But, but I do. <laughs> but I do extract elements of things that work. I should say that's my opinion. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a, the, in my opinion, gamifying things. Yeah. Um, you don't have to gamify things. Life yeah, already gamified. It does. But well, here's so let me. Play is interesting because it's um, it is a form of learning about yourself and others and the mm -hmm. world around you, and it's not just humans. All mammals yeah. play to learn how to get food. Mm -hmm. Right? Dogs play yeah. because they're learning how to hunt. Uh, kids play house or kitchen because they're learning how to navigate space and take care of things and, and so tinkering right, and making it's interesting that i'm seeing these things converge you know that's um anyways sorry and the tinkering yeah. comes in when we um challenge the learners to create projects for other learners ah okay that's at least that's how i approach it we don't yeah. we don't have much opportunity to just tinker for the sake of tinkering yeah and again i'm a very practical person so right <laughs> um that's when they get a chance to tinker with it. And also when they're designing the robot for something for a purpose, there's a bigger goal in mind, but they still get given the opportunity during our prototype time yeah. to just tinker and come up with without bound without bounds. That's that's an interesting point that you made at the beginning there that because I I very much um, you know, was was raised in that mindset of um, we you know, it's nice that you're curious about this, but we can't let you take it apart because it's going to cost a lot of money yep. if you do. I mean, it would have been nice to grow up in a house where you know, you, you're incredibly wealthy and you could take apart a computer, mm -hmm. but it just so happened that that was the only computer. Yeah. And if you broke the computer, then you didn't have a computer. Mm -hmm. um, and the, and the, but there, are, there must be like low stakes ways of engaging people in those things, similar to like your flashlight. Mm -hmm. um, what, are, what are some, how do you get people, because I, that's a mindset that you, even if the thing's inexpensive, it's hard to get out of because you've been raised to think yes. like, you don't, don't look in there because if you do and it breaks, we're, we don't have it anymore. How do, you, how do you get people past that and say, no, 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 it's not that, it's, you know. Well, getting people yeah. past it, getting adults is past it is harder than teens. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. Right. <laughs> uh, the younger the, the younger the person, the less they care about yeah. or aware of what it costs. Right. Right. So. <laughs> right. That's funny. <laughs> Think about it. You know, right. Yeah. Uh, your own daughters, do they care how much something costs when they try to take it apart? And they don't even know how much it costs. No concept. Uh, on the the converse end of it, though, they'll play with a box. Yes. Because value is immaterial. And actually, that's the other thing too. Yeah. Inexpensive materials is the one way to get around it. Yeah. Because when you can um, 
with inexpensive materials, when you don't like the outcome, you throw it away. The big right, deal. right. Um, and the more expensive material to come, the more inclined you are to want to make it right the first time. Yeah. So to get past it, buy inexpensive materials and talk about how it would be different. So we use, we use cardboard a lot. Oh, um, yeah. We joke a lot about our CAD being cardboard assisted design. Yeah, right, 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 <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so we, we use that because that's something you can, you can manipulate quickly and easily. Yeah. But you also quickly discover the, um, the, sh the limitations yeah. When you try and do when you try and do things mechanical things because it right. don't move quite well. Right. But once you've gotten a few things to work um, in a two two dimensional space, yeah, you have a little bit more confidence when you decide to move it to the three dimensional space because the cardboard tends to be two dimensional most of the time. I mean, there are ways to, to get around that, but you spend so much time right. trying to solve the problem that you get away from solving them. You spend so much time to make the cardboard do the right. job it wasn't meant to do, away from solving the problem that you had started in the first place. So what do you think, I mean, we, we have, um, you know, for better or worse, computers control a large amount of what happens in the world right now. Um, and uh, up until recently, at least, computers used to be, so, so we have these systems around us that are incredibly expensive. Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, at least up until recently, um, to understand how those systems work and to take them apart was very costly. And so it's, it's almost as if, to understand these things that are controlling our world, you had to have the um, the I can't try, I can't think of the word I'm trying to get at. You you had to be able to get the resources. Have the resources. Yeah, I couldn't take apart like we were talking about before. You can't take mm -hmm. apart the computer um, because then you don't have one. So what is what is it about? How do you get? How do you how do you translate the knowledge of working with cardboard and tinkering with? low stakes materials, um, how do you translate that to it's okay to tinker with this or, or this knowledge applies to these other systems like computers even if we're not working with them? Is that something that's possible or do you, do you know what I'm kind of yeah, getting I, at? Yeah, it's, it's possible. You, yeah. it's, it's, it's almost how you get from a, um, a cardboard prototype to a yeah. robot. Yeah, right. Um, by keeping the conversation conceptual yeah. All the time. Okay. So if you're talking about um, a great example was our our double bar left our first double bar that yeah. never got off the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we kept talking about the concepts entirely and then completely, so that when as you start moving up to different materials, you have the same concepts in mind, and now you have the language because words matter. Now you right. have the language that that's necessary to do additional research. Right. Um, you have your design pillars too. You've got your guideposts. Your yep. So yeah. Okay. Um, and then most things can be explained through um, metaphors and analogies. Yeah. Um, even so, robotics for me is really an analogy about life in general. Sure. Because it's all separate systems that must work together yeah. in order to accomplish something, which is all our society is it's a bunch of separate yeah. systems that must work together. Yeah. So if you keep the language, yeah. Uh, if you scaffold the language, yeah. Then after a while, um, you don't really notice the difference. Just different material. There's a really good uh, that reminds me of a good book by um, Valentino Breitenberg called Vehicles. Vehicles. And okay. it teaches the philosophy behind robotics without ever actually talking about robots really? and how to make. Uh, how to so Breitenberg, for instance, um, a Breitenberg vehicle is a, uh, a a vehicle, a robot vehicle with um, two photoresistors at the front mm -hmm. that are looking at light, right? And um, and then it's just a little bit of software that you would write behind it, such that um, if the robot sees light, um, maybe in one instance you would make the motor move faster, which would simulate aggression. Okay. And if you have it, maybe where um, you know, you've got two photoresistors, one's essentially at the left and one essentially is the right eye, and they control you know, the different sides of the, the vehicle. If you had maybe the left eye, um, uh, the, the left eye, once it sees light, um, want to stay near it but not go all the way toward it, okay. it might seem cautious. Okay. Um, or if it sees light, it runs away, and so it's afraid. And so it's, it's, it's vehicles and robots as w and designing robots 
as a way of explaining how organisms work. Because if you look at like how a tadpole um, you know, might wander around in the water, they're actually following these invisible currents and heats and, and coolnesses, um, and that's dictating how the, their, their behavior works. But yeah, it's kind of like what you're talking about, where it's, 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 a, it's still, it's, it's, a, it's a, a bigger concept than we're gonna build a robot. It's it a system that a you're system. learning. Absolutely. Interesting. So you can, by taking that, you can, you can explain other systems out there Absolutely. without needing to have a $5,000 license to Bosch, you know, thing maker or whatever that, you know, that, that stuff is called and all that other stuff. Absolutely. And you can, yeah. um, and I think about making too, is that huh. you can now simulate things. Yeah. Because you don't necessarily need the electronics behind it. It helps with it there, but you don't need to. Yeah. Um, Sensors, you can you can you can create you can make your own sensors. Yeah. Of course, they won't be very practical, but you can. <laughs> but sure. You can, you can make sensors enough to explain how sensors work. Yeah. Um, it's something as simple as um, you can make a touch sensor just by having two pieces of metal that touch each other occasionally. Right. Right. And complete the circuit. Now that would mean nothing to you if you hadn't built a flashlight first. Right. <laughs> right. Light because you're right. You don't have the dominoes fall into place or however you. So, so we've been talking about robots a lot, okay? Because uh, you're involved in first robotics, and um, you know, I, I think that that's a really interesting thing to talk <laughs> about. Maybe your perfect example of first. Um, so, what is it that attracts you to first robotics? There's other, um, you know, the 4-H club has their robotics thing, and there are other robotics programs I'm sure out there. What is it attracts you that attracts you to to first in particular? Okay, so um, FIRST is the only program that was built from the beginning based on the concept of partnering team learners with professionals. So mentoring um, was at the heart of FIRST from the very beginning. I see. Mm -hmm. um, they were founded on the principle that we want to inspire young people to learn more and to work harder. Yeah. As opposed to saying we we're going to try to have a competition. Sure. The um, and they, they were always taking a real-world approach, but instead of a dry real-world, I shouldn't call it dry, but um, instead of addressing the, the major engineering challenges of the, of the, of the world, which yeah. is very real-world and it's valuable, sure. they said, these are teenagers, so let's use a sports model. Yeah. They yeah. combined the sports model with play. the entertainment model. Yes, play. Let's, let's, let's let these yeah. uh, young people play with adults, let the adults play, and yeah. let's build them that's fun and along the way teach them some valuable things. Yeah. So the other thing about FIRST is that it is always a challenge that's bigger than you can do alone. Almost ah. every other robotics competition, and you'll see it happen, you may have one or two students on the team. Yeah. Because they can sit down and do it by themselves. Yeah. It's hard to do that in FIRST. Yeah. And, this, and it should be. They give you a hard challenge. Yeah. They limit your resources, they limit your time. They create a situation that's more stressful than most engineers would face. Because you need to, right? We were talking about before group work needing mm -hmm. to have more. You need a goal. Yeah. yeah. You need a bigger, you need a bigger goal than yourself. Yeah. So when you get when you get focused on that goal, you get past everything else. Yeah. Um, also, they built collaboration into it. Yeah. And so, um, and it was speed collaboration. Okay. So um, you find out the day of the competition who your alliance partners are. Yeah. Often you may have half an hour before the matches start. We have to get along quick. We have to get along quick. <laughs> Not only have yeah. to get along, we have to come up with a strategy fast. Right. And I'm your partner for five minutes and then I'm on to some, being someone else's partner. Right. So I have to remain flexible. Right. I can't take the position that um, your religious beliefs and my religious beliefs are inconsistent, therefore we don't mm. work together. Yeah. Because if I don't work with you, we lose. Right. I also can't take the position that our beliefs are different. You're my opponent, I'm going to destroy your robot because right. the next match, you might be my partner. Right. So they, were, they built into the um, system from the very beginning reasons to work together. Gracious professionalism. Gracious professionalism yeah. is, the, is the big thing. Yeah. I want to be 
compete like crazy. I want to I want to compete at the highest level of excellence that I can attain. Yeah. But I want to do it with kindness and graciousness. Yeah. I don't want to win because I annihilated you. Right. I want to win because I actually excelled above your level of excellence. Right. So and taking the craft to the next. Taking the craft to the next level. Absolutely. Yeah. So I saw lots of real life applications in that. Yeah. Uh, by the time that I started working with FIRST, I had already um, achieved a certain level of success in the, in the, in the industry. Yeah. Um, and I did so without none of the traditional um, markers of success. Okay. So I'd already seen what it was like when people worked in groups and um, addressing big challenges and they couldn't get along. Yeah. And I had seen success when they could, so I knew that those skills were important. Yeah. Um, the other programs have some value. This was, um, for instance, first it's really very much about mechanical engineering. Okay. It was originally very strongly focused on that. Okay. It's become a little bit more um, balanced now. So okay. there's the strong computer science component. Got it. And even before autonomous programming was a big part of it, yeah. The simple fact that a robot is a system yeah. meant you would, t you would learn in computer science concepts even if you didn't call them that. You would yeah. learn a systems level thinking, let's put it that way. Yeah. So computational thinking was a part of it long before, even if you never did any programming, because you had to understand that all those systems work together, that there were patterns, that you had to, uh, yeah. the games required you to develop strategic log logarithms. Yeah. So um, it just met a lot of uh, academic needs that I was trying to address. Before we started doing robotics, I was also doing things like um, technology workshops for okay. students, parents, mm -hmm. for families so they can learn to use the technology, the internet safety, um, trying to, to have people learn how to understand technology enough to use as a tool. Yeah. Um, I was doing um, Reading, um, reading literacy. Okay. So we would, for instance, I developed a, a citywide, I'm sorry, she was a, a full city program uh, that took a book and brought it to life. And so you'd actually, uh, Chase and Vermeer, okay. which takes place in Hyde Park and the Art Institute. Huh. And so we just used the city as sort of a, of a um, playground, if you will. Yeah, playground, yeah. And we went through it. So I was doing all these things, these disparate things. I discovered first robotics. I'm like, wow, I can do this all in one place. Yeah. You can learn public speaking and marketing and yeah. strategy and and these STEM, these hardcore STEM subjects. So th this is kind of um, made me think of, of something that I I think about quite often actually, um, and it concerns me at some level, which is um, okay. So you, you were talking about how um, looking at uh, you know robotics and, and the autonomy and all, all these other things. You're, you're learning systems. Yes. Um, and the systems are very how they are connected mm -hmm. um, is, is not maybe perfectly clear, but it's it's evident. Okay. Um, or at least it's easy to uncover. And now we have um, we have these um, things that are connected around us. But are connected not through any physical thing, but are connected through some. You can connect a toaster to your watch. Ah, right? the Internet They're, of Things. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And and how what, what concerns me about that, and not in like a way where we need to stop or we need to, but in a way where like I I, I want to hear more people talking about it is how do you how do you bring those those systems of and those connections how do you make those real to people because I think that's where some of the the dangers that we, we see now um, really lie is that we, we take these things for granted, but we don't know how they work together. And it's very easy for for people who do know how they work together to then use those things mm -hmm. as so. power or inflection points. So you do it the same way you do the tangible things. You start yeah. small. Yeah. Um, you start with what's familiar. Yeah. So um, most young people today, most people today, um, especially those 40 and under, yeah. intuitively understand what wireless communication is. Yeah. They may not know why it works, but they understand that it's there. Right. Um, but because most have no knowledge or memory of life before then, they don't realize how um, much they're open to um, 
abuse from that. Yeah. So um, my son has this activity he does with students, which is really kind of cool. Okay. Uh, he starts telling them things about themselves. He'll ask two or three questions. And then he'll start showing them how much they've exposed with just mm. the two or three innocuous questions. Yeah. Um, and he'll generally keep going until someone says, I, I believe you stop. They know he's going someplace sensitive. Right. Um, so you start with what's familiar. Understand your data. Mm -hmm. Your privacy is important. Yeah. And explain to them how it's working or how it's, you get around that. Robots, honestly, because they're wirelessly communicating, are also a good entry point because mm -hmm. um, you have a control in your hand. There's nothing else that's there. Right. Um, some of the problems that we solve within a competition or scrimmage have to do with signals getting crossed. Right. Where you can actually control someone else's robot uh, accidentally. Yeah. So you can you can actually set up environments where you make those things happen. Yeah. And then you talk about um, how technology has and uh, as it improved and costs has come down, you can get you know, really cheap microcomputers now. Yeah. That you can control the things around you. Yeah. Um, and put in place some really simple um, projects so if people can actually activate something in the room and you can do um, pranks with them. Yeah. Because the teams they resonate with that. Yeah. Um, and then start talking about how the bigger level that, yes, I just, um, I just turned the TV off. Does the TV be gone thing that Barney? Yeah. Okay. I turned the television yeah. off. Mitch Altman. Yeah. Mitch Altman, yes. So that's a ha-ha until, yeah. until the person says, or I could have turned off the power to your house. Right, or your pacemaker. Or your pacemaker. <laughs> and you, so um, ethics are an important discussion to have. Right. Um, so I'm not sure if it was Dan Law or Jeff Solon from Lane Tech mm -hmm. have this, um, this classroom project where they took Rube Goldberg machines. Oh, sure, yeah. And instead of activating them physically, to activate them through the internet. Yeah. So the one machine would trigger, would send a message to the internet, which then would send a message to another machine to trigger it. Yeah. That's another way to show uh, connectivity. Yeah. Um, and how um, these unseen forces yeah. can make things happen in the physical world. That's, that's important, unseen forces. This is, so I have, I have a last question for you, and I think this is gonna, this is gonna be, do you think that by exposing these systems, the fundamental thing that you're you're doing is exposing s systems of power and how um, systems uh, how how you know either these invisible things that we're talking about have the ability to control you, and if you know them, then you can prevent them from taking you know from from controlling your life, right? Um, or uh, you know systems of, of robotics or whatever, but also. I think it expands out from there, and you were talking about other systems too. Absolutely, I think yeah. that um, our people people perish for lack of knowledge. Yeah, um, it is absolutely important that uh, all people understand that there are many unseen forces that technology brings to bear. Lots of unseen forces that manipulate the world that we're around. If you're not aware of it, then you become a manipulator. I think someone someone said that if um, if the service, if the product is free, then you're the product. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> if the service is free, then you're the product. Yeah. You need to be aware that um, people benefit. Yeah. From your data. Yeah. And that if you're not, if you don't understand and value your data, or know how it can be used, then you can, you can be manipulated in ways that you never realize. And if you do understand those things, then you're in a position that you can. Um, First of all, at, at the lowest level, protect yourself. Yeah. But you can start creating your own content. Uh -huh. You can create your own systems that benefit you yeah. in ways that others may not consider just because they aren't aware. Yeah. Um, you can disarm those systems of oppression. Sure. Because many of those un unseen systems are really systems of oppression. Yeah. And there's nothing worse than being oppressed and not know it because then you blame <laughs> yourself for things that can't happen. Um, a good example of the experiments that they did with, uh, I think it was monkeys, where if they, um, there was a, a force between the monkey or the animal and uh, a snack. Yeah. And you couldn't see it. If you reach through it, it would be the shock. Yeah. 
and eventually turned it off. They wouldn't go through it anyway. Sure. Because they had decided themselves this was unsafe to reach beyond a certain point. Well, if you don't know that the thing is there and you reach for something and there's an obstacle that stops you, you can't see it, yeah. you start thinking, I'm the problem. Yeah. I can't do this thing because I'm lacking in some way. Oh. But if yeah. I know how to check for you know this force field, yeah. I can check for it. And when, when I, if I fail, I can check for that to see, is the problem internal or external? If the problem's external, then I'm gonna go this path. If the problem's internal, I can go the other. But if all you know is I can't do it, you blame yourself. That's and you start actually short-circuiting yourself. That's a perfect place to, to end this, I think. So, okay. So at the end of these things, what, um, what I like to do is um, ask people where they can find you. Uh, on the internet or in person if you want to do that too. Uh, but probably just on the internet. Uh, where do you have like a, what's your website? What's your, your do you have a, a Twitter or a, what's the other things? Um, Snapchat or where? where okay. <laughs> so um, a few years back, one of the students I met at a, at a high school gave me the nickname Robotics Lady. Yeah. And you can find Robotics Lady on Twitter. Okay. You can find Robotics Lady at Gmail. Okay. You can find Robotics Lady on Facebook. Okay. Um, and you can, there's even about me, yeah. this lady, so you can find me. Cool. Um, any websites or anything like that or anything that you're doing you want to talk, promote real quick or things people should know about? That's coming up soon. Mm, nothing to think about. You just me. got your big thing finished with the FTC kickoff. Well, first. we just finished. And, well, actually, the. And, and your the, and Southside Maker Fair. Fair, yeah. The Southside Maker Fair just finished. Um, Right down, nothing comes to mind. I'm okay, you're gonna take some time and and yeah. Now I'm, I'm gonna. Yeah. I'm, well, we have things. We're starting up our new season. Yeah. So our robotics team is getting ready to gear up. I need to actually project number two. Time. Yeah. <laughs> project number two. Awesome. Well, thank you for for joining me today. Well, thank you. And actually, I enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, me too. This has been This Should Work podcast session number seven, an interview with Jackie Moore, first robotics team founder, educator, makerspace organizer, maker fair organizer, and all around excellent human being. Thanks for listening. In our next session, we will be interviewing not one, but several people from one of the oldest pottery guilds, co-ops, in the country, Wesleyan Potters, out of Connecticut. So stay tuned for podcast session eight, where we interview some people who are deep into the crafts, both pottery as well as with textiles. And in many ways, where this whole maker movement, if that's what it is, thing started, the arts and crafts. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to This Should Work on any of your major podcast listening feeds and share us on facebook twitter or whatever it is people are using these days to share things until next time this is jay margulis with this should work